Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash deathdyingandotherthings. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. Driving through the desert in the southwest of the U.S. at night can get pretty unnerving especially on nights with no moon, especially alone in the car, especially with no other cars on the highway. It gets so dark out there, so dark that the blackness takes on a life of its own. Your eyes, in that kind of night, start to play tricks on you. They're desperate to make sense of the fields of black, and so you start to see patterns that aren't there. The darkness can start to roll over on itself, start to form waves like the ocean. Your eyes will start to organize the darkness into shapes and silhouettes. Stuff that isn't there. Stuff that's all in your mind. Maybe. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a story about a highway out on the fringes of the desert. In part one of A Highway on the Edge... A group of paranormal investigators check on a hot spot out in the wilderness. Death and dying. The thresholds between this world and the next. The boundary between light and dark. The barrier between worlds. And that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Fifty miles north of Flagstaff, Arizona, as you're approaching the Grand Canyon from the south, there's a small turnoff onto a dirt road. A blink-and-you'll-miss-it type thing. Uh, it's a narrow, neglected path, uh, barely fit for automobiles. If you take that road for five or so miles, which at the snail's pace you have to, to stay safe, You'll come to another two-lane highway that was meant at some point in the distant past to loop around the backside of the Grand Canyon. Now, though, it doesn't go anywhere. At least nowhere that a normal person might want to go. I'm not, a, I'm not a normal person, though. My name's Dylan Jacobs, and I'm a paranormal investigator here to tell you 
about what I found on that stretch of highway a few months ago. I want to tell you off the bat, most of the gears fried, tapes, photos, and readings too, nearly all of it's gone. Um, I think it was some kind of uh, electromagnetic pulse. I was able to recover a few uh, audio recordings, three of them, off one of the hard drives, but that's it. And I'll get to those later. Bob and I, on this particular trip, brought our usual assistants with us, Randy Westcott and Jane Landis. In addition to the personnel, we had the following inventory. Four tents, one for each of us, three audio recorders, 200 feet of XLR cable, three shotgun and three omnidirectional microphones, two GoPros, five motion-activated trail cameras, two consumer-grade camcorders, two consumer-grade SLR cameras, one night vision camera, one EMF meter, a Giger counter, and one portable EKG machine. Plus, each of us had our smartphones and other personal items. Most of, uh, most of our gear is pretty standard for any paranormal investigator you work with. One of the odd items um, that I think requires a little bit of explanation is the EKG. Bob and I um, have a theory that certain paranormal events affect the cardiovascular system of living things. And I mean that beyond the normal increase in heart rate normally experienced with the release of adrenaline. What Bob and I have experienced in our career is actually, in some cases, the opposite. Sure, um, you, you have an initial burst of adrenaline that raises your heart rate, but then in the moments after that heart rate spike, your heart rate is actually rapidly lowered to below your normal resting heart rate. Um, and again, this is in some cases with some instances of paranormal activity, not all of them. You know, um, they still haven't found Bob. He's just gone, I guess. I'm still wrestling with the uh, implications of his disappearance. Bob Weckler, he's been, um, he was my compatriot for 15 years. More than that, though, he was my friend. We've been doing this for a long time, and had never seen anything like what we saw on that highway up there. We arrived near 3 p.m. on April 25th, a Thursday. We were going to set up camp on the side of the highway, take some preliminary readings that night after nightfall, and then begin the investigation in earnest the following morning. We'd be up there through Saturday night and leave Sunday morning. But the problem started right away. We couldn't get our generator started, and without the generator, we couldn't charge our batteries, which would become a problem sometime Saturday night when the last of our batteries ran out of juice. We decided, um, after three hours or so of trying to start the generator, that we'd try again in the morning, and we'd run off one of the cars, if absolutely necessary, to charge some batteries. Uh, next were the tents though the ground appeared to be heavy, hard clay, um, it turned to dust when met with stake and hammer. And without those stakes, we couldn't secure our four tents to the ground. 
To make that matter worse, the wind was picking up, whipping not only our canvas tents around, but the dusty ground as well. Sleeping outside uh, under the stars was not going to be an option in those conditions. Luckily, we travel with a fairly high number of sandbags and were able to sacrifice enough of those to ensure that two of our four tents would remain fastened to the ground. We'd sleep two to a tent, Bob and I in one, Jane and Randy in the other, which would be cramped, but, um, but bearable. The dust storm the wind whipped up brought visibility to near zero. The four of us had bandanas we were able to wrap around our faces so we could breathe, and a job several years ago taught us to always bring safety goggles, which protected our eyes. But seeing was another thing altogether. The, uh, the dust storm was bad enough, but by this point the sun was setting, coloring every inch around us bright orange. It would have been beautiful in any other context, honestly. The dust stirring the colors of the sunset all around us, but uh, not in that context. We had, until then, only set up two of the three overnight audio recording stations, which Bob and I had a short conversation about the usefulness of if the wind held up all night. We had also planned to set up the five motion-activated trail cameras, but again, if the wind and the dust held all night, what good would those be? The four of us slipped into my car at this point to escape the dust and um, have a conversation about reformulating our plan going forward. I spoke up first, saying that it, uh, it didn't seem like any of the audio we'd get from the recorders would be useful until the storm died down. Jane agreed, and Randy pointed out that in addition to unusable audio, the trail cameras, in his words, wouldn't pick up Dick through the dust. I asked the three of them what they thought our uh, next move should be. Jane recommended waiting out the storm and finishing the setup when the weather was better. Bob agreed with Jane, but wondered how long the wind could keep up. I remember Randy repeating that he thought it could easily last all night. My point was that it might not last all night and we didn't really have a choice, and Jane asked if the plan then was to just hole up in the car. Uh, I told her that I was going to, and they were welcome to keep me company if they wanted. And after uh, one of Jane's patented long sighs, she said that she'd stay in there too. Bob said he was going to also stay in the car, and that when the storm gave up, uh, we'd finished setting up the gear, and I said I was going to try to get some rest because I didn't imagine um, that over the coming three days I would get another chance to really get some shut-eye. So that's what I did. I closed my eyes, um, and I fell asleep faster than I think I ever have in my entire life. Uh, we woke up to a loud screaming several hours later, just after 10 p.m. Somehow, 
All four of us had slept soundly through the storm. The sky was clear and the moon was out bright and the stars were uh, twinkling up above us. That is through the thick layer of dust that covered the car, windshield, and windows. I bolted upright as soon as I heard the noise and Bob, Randy, and Jane did the same. We all looked at each other and decided at nearly the same moment to exit the car, and each of us swung open the four doors of my sedan. Uh, Taking stock, we saw that all the gear was likewise covered in a thick layer of dust. Um, The gear we had managed to set up, I mean. So, um, two audio recorders. And, uh, And we were grateful that we had taken the time to set up those two audio recorders because moments after we exited the car, we heard the scream again. Um, Now, that's not quite right. Uh, It wasn't a scream. Maybe a screech. Uh, A loud buzzer, maybe. I can only speak for myself, uh, but when I was jolted from my sleep by this sound, I thought it was human. But now when I listen to it, it it doesn't seem human at all. And I don't understand why in that first moment it sounded so human to me. I mentioned earlier that all of the gear was fried and only a handful of audio recordings survived. This is one of them. Uh, This is a recording of the second scream or buzzer or shrieking that we heard just after exiting the car. I remember Bob yelling, holy shit. And then I turned to him and yelled to get the EKG on and that he was going to be wearing it all weekend. And he wasn't happy about it, but um, but someone had to wear it. Uh, so Jane helped him get it on, and, uh, and I helped Randy get the trail cameras set up. Um, that's how we spent the next two hours, and around midnight... We were around a small fire, a small campfire that we got going. Uh, The wind from earlier had been replaced by a complete and total stillness. No clouds in the sky, no breeze. Um, Even the insects seemed to be less active than they would normally be. Um, The crackling of the fire was the uh, only sound for a long while except for the sporadic chirping of crickets. And um, every once in a while we heard a coyote. The four of us uh, just kind of sat in silence, staring at the dancing flames and considering our next move until Randy spoke up uh, 45 minutes later, uh, just before 1 o'clock. You think we should do some exercises, I remember him asking. Some call and response 
Jane concurred, saying she wasn't going to get much sleep after that sound. And I nodded and asked if anyone had any theories about what the sound could have been. Randy, bless his soul, gave the same response he always did to that question, that it was probably a wild animal. And Jane countered that it didn't sound natural to her. I remember Bob pausing to think it over, but then agreeing with Jane that it didn't sound natural. Uh, Like I said, at first I thought it sounded human, like someone screaming, but that second time, outside the car, and every time I've listened to it since then, I just don't think so. Uh, It sounds almost like a machine to me. Uh, Bob was curious what kind of machine I meant, and I said that I didn't know Um, And maybe it wasn't a machine, but it reminded me, and it still does, of those old air raid sirens. Um, That's when Jane interrupted us to tell us she had something we'd want to see. Bob, Randy, and I jumped up and hurried over to Jane, who had the monitor showing the most recent capture of one of the motion-activated trail cameras pulled up. She was pointing to the corner of the frame, but the black and white shot looked just like any other night vision photo of the desert night to me. Um, There was some dirt, a few cacti, some rough patches of grasses. The camera could only pick up about uh, 30 yards or so, so beyond that the clay ground faded into blackness. I had to ask Jane what she was seeing because I didn't see anything. Right here, she said putting her finger directly on the patch of dirt she wanted us to focus on. After a second or so, Randy let out a distressed, uh, holy shit, and Jane said, yeah. And then I finally saw what she was talking about. Uh, Giving a rough estimate based on the nearby plants and the area's proximity to the camera, that patch of ground Jane spotted in that shot was probably about five feet across. And what Jane had pointed out was really subtle. Uh, But once we saw it, we couldn't unsee it, and it changed the course of our investigation out there. In that five-foot area at the end of Jane's finger was a series of perfectly straight lines in the ground, like, um, like several deep creases had become slightly separated and allowed the loose dust to fall into the cracks. I asked where that camera was, and Randy told me it was the one near the dry creek out west a ways, and we hurried off toward that location. What we found when we got to the trail camera's location wasn't three straight cracks any longer. The five-foot patch of ground Jane had pointed to on the monitor just minutes before had turned into a ten-foot hole about six feet deep. The ground around it was still crumbling and tumbling into that hole, reminding me of the ground at our campsite earlier that had crumbled each time we tried to hammer a stake into it. I remember Jane suggesting it was a sinkhole opening up, Randy agreeing with her, and then Bob starting to back up. And that's when we heard this.
That sound sent the four of us running back to our camp at full speed. I turned around just in time to watch the ground open up around us. The collapsing dirt chased us all the way back to the camp. When we'd reached the tents, I turned around to find a yawning crater hundreds of feet wide, too deep to see the bottom of, between us and where we had just come from. The rumbling of the collapsing ground gave way to silence, and we were left to consider how to proceed. We decided, uh, collectively, that we'd leave at first light, and we began packing up the gear that was still accessible. Unfortunately, the sinkhole gobbled up two of our trail cameras, but we were able to grab the others while we waited for the sun to rise. It never did. It was 8 a.m., an hour after sunrise was supposed to happen, that we gave up on the sun. It had been a tense handful of hours post-gear retrieval, wondering if the sinkhole would spread, wondering if we should just get out of there right then, you know? And at first, I just assumed my watch was off, so I didn't say anything. But then I noticed the others eyeing theirs, then the sky, then each other. Um, Randy mentioned a couple times that he thought the smart thing to do was to leave as soon as possible, that we didn't need the sun, that we had headlights on our cars. And he renewed and redoubled his efforts to get us in the cars and driving when it was clear the sun wasn't rising. I remember him exclaiming around 8.30 or so in the accentuated southern twang he always fell back into when he was overly aggravated. This is fucked. It was. I agreed with him. And by 9 a.m., when we were sure it wasn't just our watches that were off, when we were sure that the sun wasn't rising, and we were sure we had somehow slipped into hell, we heard this noise, the last of the recordings that I was able to recover. It sent the four of us into a tailspin. With the gear we had packed up, the only shelter we had available to us was our vehicles. The last noise, to me, sounded like it came from the north, and so I booked it to my car and ducked behind it on the south side. Jane had the same idea and joined me after a few seconds. The noise repeated itself, louder this time, and after the echoes had died, I called out to Randy and Bob. I remember Randy shouting back immediately that he was nearby, behind Bob's pickup. Bob, however, didn't respond until the third time I shouted his name, when he said the last words I ever heard him say. It's floating. Up over the sinkhole. It's floating. I shouted back, asking what he meant, and when he didn't respond, I stood up with great caution to look for him. He was already walking towards the sinkhole, towards something I couldn't see. 
I called out for him and then watched as he stepped out over the abyss and tumbled in. I yelled out, ran toward the last place I saw him, and saw something. I'm not sure what. Something big and, indeed, something floating darted down into the void after Bob. Jane joined me within a few moments, dumbstruck. I stared at her, horrified, and then remembered. Bob had never taken off the EKG. I asked Jane if she had the wireless EKG monitor ready, and she fetched it from her bag. Bob's heartbeat was already below normal levels when Jane switched on the monitor. And over the next several minutes, we watched as Bob's heartbeat was suppressed, fading until his heart, at least from what we could see, stopped beating entirely. Sorry, um, I didn't know we'd been talking for so long. I try not to stay in one place for too long since, uh, since they came asking about what we were doing up there. Anyway, um, can you meet in a few weeks for the rest of the story? And, uh, and maybe in some place more public next time. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, A Highway on the Edge, was written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to dust storms and empty gas tanks. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs>